This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martirano. I hope you're joining us for these installments each time as we speak to a bunch of different people, experts in the field of behavioral health. We're looking to generate diverse and meaningful conversations about all kinds of things, not least of which is substance abuse and the issue of mental health. It's all sponsored, of course, by Retreat Behavioral Health. We'll tell you more about them a little bit later. You know, in the context of mental health and and in the context of substance abuse uh, treatment and and recovery, uh, the idea of the second chance looms large. Actually, second chances loom large in everybody's life. Everybody likes to think that if we did mess things up, we would uh, we would get a second chance. We're going to talk to somebody today who literally wrote a book on second chances. Uh, Dave Dahl is our guest. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Dave straight ahead. But before I do that, just something in the context of what second chances, well, second chance stories usually follow a, a kind of a traditional or familiar pattern. We People make wrong decisions. They have uh, difficulties in their lives. They begin a downward spiral. They crash and burn, and then at some point they rise up out of the ashes. And uh, if they're lucky, they get that second shot, and they're uh, successfully sort of re- reborn. That's the way Dave Dahl's story uh, runs to a certain extent, uh, although the devil is in the details. And none of the second stories I've ever run into uh, also involve the baking of bread and the building of a multi-million dollar brand. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating story. If you don't know who Dave Dahl is, I'll bet if you went into your kitchen and looked around a little bit, you'd find his handiwork. It, that's, the loaf, that's the loaf of bread that's called uh, Dave's Killer Bread. An amazing story and an amazing guy. Dave Dahl is our guest here on Recovery Radio. Dave, uh, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Uh, I'm honored. Thank you. Before we get started, I got to tell you something uh, amusing. When you know you, you, somebody brought me to your attention because, frankly, I didn't know much about you, and they and they told me you know, your backstory. I thought, well, this is great. This sounds like an interesting guy. Something about it uh, struck me as odd, though. I couldn't quite figure out, you know, why the name was familiar. And then um, I was looking in the refrigerator one day, and I see the lo- the loaf of bread that's always there because my wife's been buying Dave's Killer Bread for years. And I went, and I pulled it out, and I went, this is that bread you always talk about. And she said, yeah, what about it? <laughs> I, said, I said, well, I'm interviewing the guy who, who created it. She went, no, you're not. I said, yeah, I yeah. am. Uh, so you've got, I know you've got loads of fans about the bread, but uh, my wife is chief among them. So it's uh, funny, oh, how, thank you. funny how that tell works. Her, tell her thank you. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, really, this is uns- she, she just loves the bread. Well, we're going to find out about that a little bit later. Dave, tell us, look, you once described your life as sort of made up of uh, mental illnesses, uh, drug abuse, and then a life of crime. Um, it's a pretty succinct uh, description of the kind of troubles you had. T- tell us, you know, your story. Where did all this start? Well, I'm 57 years old now, so there's a lot of story. But uh, if we begin where things kind of went off the rails, I, I, in a way, I feel like they went off the rails before I even knew ever got on the rails. Um, back when I was, say, you know, early teens at the very latest, I, I went to, I had a Seventh-day Adventist upbringing. I went to uh, Christian schools, and essentially I was uh, I was sheltered as a kid. And 
I, it was really the only thing I knew was this, uh, this little um, community. And when I got to a point where I started questioning the things I was being taught, it was a really tough time because I, um, I didn't know where else to go either, you know? So I kind of jumped, uh, in a way, kind of fell out into the world and started uh, stumbling through one situation after another. Um, and I, I battled mental, mental illness in the form of depression um, in my teenage years, thought about suicide quite a bit, uh, really didn't see where I you know, had a future. So, um, you know, my family was bakers. And so I did grow up in a bakery. Um, you know, there were things that were, there were, there were things I could have done. You know, I could have chosen to be a baker and a Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, I didn't want to be either. So I, I essentially went out and did um, one, one drug after another. I finally discovered the drug that I liked. It actually gave me what I call my first transformation in life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I stuck a needle of methamphetamine in my arm because I had, I did, had nothing to lose in my, in, you know, my estimation. And um, immediately the, there was no more depression. In fact, I, I really felt like life had just turned into something good. And I mean, beyond good. So uh, unfortunately, continuing to get high cost me money, more money than I could afford, especially as I started screwing off my job um, and started staying up all night and going out and doing, you know, burglaries and things. Uh, burglaries to support my habit. And this happened throughout my, in my 20s. And I went to prison four times um, after that, you know, from my 20s to my early 40s. And uh, during my last prison set, I was 38 years old and I had a moment of, I guess, clarity after, it was an epiphany. Uh, you know, when I, I, again, was depressed, I was um, suicidal and I just never quite had the, I guess I used to say had the balls to take my myself out, you know. Uh, but it was always on my mind. And then uh, I had this epiphany that, you know what, I have nothing to lose. I don't care what anybody thinks of me in here. I don't care if people think I'm a tough guy or if they think I'm whatever. I don't care what they think. And I dropped, I, I had the humility that I discovered and I dropped this kite uh, inmate communication form in the box uh, asking for help from psych services. And I, I really didn't expect it to work. I just was like desperate. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, the combination of the humility, waving the white flag, the uh, surrender, and um, then they gave me a medication called Paxil. And those, that combination of things somehow worked for me. And I started seeing life differently. Then I got into school about the same time. Went to a, a trade school in prison for computer and drafting. And I loved it so much. And I realized that, hey, there's, there's something in life for me here. And from that point on, I never, I never really um, 
had a doubt that I was going to do all right. And, and uh, let's let's back up a little bit. You, you mentioned in the stuff I've read about you, the, the, you've wrote, I think you wrote you wrote a book called The Second, uh, The Good Seed, right? Um, it was actually uh, a, yeah, a memoir mm-hmm. because people were asking me when I made the bread. Uh, I made the bread I, way after you know after I got out of prison. I went, just went back to work for my family, the bakery, and um, I put my story on the bread bag because people were going to find out who I was anyway. So I just came out and told them, "Hey, I'm a ex-con, but you know I'm, I'm actually a pretty good guy." <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and, people who haven't people who haven't seen your bread. Not not only is it delicious. I told you, my wife swears by it. But this, the Dave's story about second chances is right there on the uh, on the wrapper. But before we get to that, before we get, to, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. The, you talk extensively in in your memoir and other other uh, interviews I've read about this religious uh, upbringing you had and how it, it's not uncommon for a young guy to sort of reject or rebel against strongly held views that his parents and family might have did uh, did their religious beliefs do you, do you believe they drove you away uh, or were you on that rebellious pla- rebellious path whether your folks were religious or not that's so hard i you know that's a tough question nobody's ever asked me that one um i i don't know uh really i know that there was a lot of low self-esteem involved and but i you know, I'm not sure what came before what. I, I yep. know that looking back, if I just could have maybe had the right mentor or, you know, people that understood my problem and were able to kind of take me under their wings, things would have been different. And because of that, I, I try to help people myself. Now. Yeah. But back then, um, you know, nobody really understood my problem. Right. They, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people who had the the feelings and the thoughts that I have mm-hmm. that I just didn't meet those kind of people. Yeah, at no point and, at no point during your struggles there, even when you were in prison, was anybody looking at you as someone who had um in fact mental health issues, right? You were just a bad guy. No, people didn't talk about that, you know. Uh it's one thing you you generally don't come out and tell people you got mental issues. In fact, I didn't really think I had mental issues. I just thought, hey, you know, I'm depressed because life sucks. You know, I'm not not the other way around. Um, I just thought I was reacting to having a, a shit life. You know, I, I hope I didn't hope you can beat that out. Well, we, we, but, we, we'll try. <laughs> uh, a bad life. And, you know, why wouldn't I be depressed and unhappy? But... You know, way later I realized that that's all something you can you can uh, take into your hands and change. When you talk about surrender, Dave, uh, you were already under lock and key. What did you? What were you surrendering to? I was surrendering to um, humility, to to being open and looking at things exactly as they are, instead of trying to be tough, trying to act tough, trying not to let anybody know how I was feeling. Um, and that surrender was just a moment of, hey, I'm vulnerability, I guess is the word. Um, I became vulnerable, vulnerable to change and help. Dave Dahl is our guest. That's Dave, a huge deal. You know, it, it, it's a it key, key points why I bring it up. Dave Dahl, our guest. Dave is among many other uh, um, claims to fame, the uh, creator of uh, Dave's Killer Bread, which he developed for his family's 
a bakery business way back as he was trying to get his life together that became a remarkable success. We'll find out more about that success, where that led Dave, where he is now, and how his life has been shaped by his second chance. That's what we're talking about on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We are uh, delighted to have Dave Dahl with us. As I said, Dave is the, among many other things, the uh, creator of a, a huge success in the uh, in the baking industry, uh, something called Dave's Killer Bread. And we're going to find all about that uh, straight ahead, how Dave's role in that and, and what it resulted in. Uh, but on the road to that success, Dave went through some horrific, uh, horrific experiences with the mental illnesses he was fighting that no one was diagnosing, the drugs he was abusing, and the... Uh, the crime, which led to um, an awful lot of, of uh, jail time. Uh, so it's been an extraordinary road for Dave uh, Dahlem. We're glad he's willing to share that with us, as he has for years now with other people. Dave, how many times were you arrested, to your, to your best recollection? Oh, I, I can't count that. Um, you know, dozens, how I can say. Yeah. Um, what actually, was, but yeah. convictions were were much many less. Yeah. What, what what was the what was the longest stretch you were looking looking at it at any given point? Um, I was looking if the last time the feds were going to give me twenty years if I didn't take ten years from the state. So um, I did. So I ended up taking the ten year deal, and it was actually one hundred and eighteen months. I want to be accurate there. Uh, just two months short of ten year, ten years, and uh, I did eighty four months on that. Yeah, well, that's a long stretch. What kind of? Uh, and you were in, you know, your your typical uh, heavy duty prisons. These weren't uh, country club jails, right? No, yeah, medium medium security. Yeah, yeah, occasional maximum when you get a little trouble, you know. Okay. Um, and these were basically for for uh, uh, robbing, burglary. Uh, would yeah. You, you, yeah, for me, I uh, started out, my first was burglary. The second was uh, armed robbery in Massachusetts. And then, uh, you know, other little things here and there. Then it was uh, unarmed robbery in Oregon again. And finally, um, you know, the conviction was for assault and delivery. But I was looking at a lot of different things at that time, and I pled to those two. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll we talked a little bit about that at the beginning. I want to I want to circle back to the beginnings when you talk about uh, the religious uh, the religious uh, circumstances under which you were raised and how you uh, rejected that stuff and and went on to the kind of life we just described. But I've read you comment before about as a young man uh, and probably before that. You had this sense that you never fit in. You never fit in. I've heard that. That's true. I've heard that so many times, and it's always worth hearing an individual's story about that. Can, can you recall and, and describe for us what you mean when you say you never fit in? Well, as, as a young fellow, um, I really wanted to. I really wanted to fit in, but. Um, you know, I really, I wanted to, I wanted love, and I didn't really feel like I got love anywhere. Uh, I, I felt ugly, I felt <laughs> um, stupid, you know, uh, I wasn't particularly athletic, wasn't bad, but I wasn't, it wasn't great. I didn't stand out in anything, and I, um, I just, you know, I didn't have social graces. My family, I didn't learn social graces growing up, and it, it 
to this day, I still don't know how to eat right. You know how to how to sit at the table right and and use the right forks, whatever. Um, there's just I'm just lacking in those things. But I got to the point, you know, back then I really cared about that. I mean, all I thought about it, it, it became a complex where, you know, oh my God, I'm just, I'm no good at this, no good at that. And I can't change that. That was the problem. I, I eventually learned you can change anything. And uh, in those days, I, I I just felt hopeless and helpless. Do you, did you have siblings growing up? I do, yeah. Uh, I had an older brother, eight years older than me. His name's Glenn. He ran the bakery during those years that I was in prison. And uh, I have a sister, Linda, who was a little older than me. And I had another little brother who died uh, about ten years ago. So you're in the you're in the middle there. Were any of your brothers or sisters similarly um, troubled with social anxiety? Yes. Or yeah. No question. We were all, all the youngsters, not, not my oldest brother, Clan. He seemed to escape that. He was insulated from something, you know, and he tried to help. But, you know, my sister, my little brother and myself, I think we all had mental issues, anxiety, depression, and uh, low self-esteem issues. Well, uh, was there at any point uh, when people went, gee, there's something going on in that family? Um, or, or did you all just think, well, we're all miserable? Well, I, I I always tried to break away. To me, the family was the problem. And so I always tried to break away. I was kind of the only person who went my own way. And But in those early days, there was sort of a, like, well, you know, there, there's a class, there's a class system in the world, you know, and we were low class, you know, in my, it's the way I looked at it, you know. Yeah, but that doesn't seem like it, it doesn't jibe with what, what I, what I've read and what you've said. Your, your, uh, your parents may not have been, you know, living, you know, living the Ozzy and Harriet lifestyle, but they had a six, they had a successful business. I mean, your dad, uh, he, well, he's successful because it, my, my dad was a very hard worker and was willing to, uh, work you know, ridiculous hours, and we all worked crazy hours just to keep that thing going. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good things about my family. I've come to realize that, you know, the, the hard work principles and the, the kind of integrity that I believe my family had, those things are, are became very valuable and important to me. But at the time, I was rebelling against all of that. Mm-hmm. Dave Dahl, our guest, uh, we're going to get to, to the uh, heart of the matter when uh, Dave makes his, uh, his effort to get, get his life back together and get on the road to, um, you know, happiness in the second chance. Straight ahead here on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. Uh, we're talking about second chances in the context of, well, both substance abuse and mental health issues and how important they are. With our guest, Dave Dahl, we'll return to Dave in just a second, though. I want to remind you, the Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health. I've told you this a lot, and it's worth saying over and over again. Uh, they they underwrite the program not because they're here to tell you they're the only place in the world that you can get help. They're a great place. Their reputation is uh, impeccable in the regards of with regards to substance abuse treatment and mental health areas as well. They sponsor this program as an informational and educational guide. And when we give you their phone number, it's it's for that purpose. If they can help you, they will. 
but they're there to answer questions for you. And again, I say this all the time. We hope you never have to use the number. But in a crunch, it can be a difference maker. 855-859-8818. That's how you reach Retreat Behavioral Health, 855-859-8810. Dave Dahl is our guest. Uh, He is talking about his remarkable life story, the ups and downs, the in and out of jail, the trouble with the law and uh, substance abuse, low self-esteem, mental health issues, and, and to come out the other side as uh, remarkably as he, as he has is a real testament to what, what, is, what is possible. So, Dave, you have this moment of clarity in jail when you realize everything you thought you understood, you, you didn't understand everything you were doing that you thought was the only thing available. You couldn't do that anymore, and you sort of gave it up, asked for help, got some training in school or in the, in prison, uh, managed to get out a little early, I, I take it. And, uh, and yeah. then your brother, then your brother offered you a job back in the, in the bakery business, correct? Yeah. When, uh, my brother always knew that or believed in me as, as, you know, my abilities to create product, you know, to be, to be helpful, help, you know, keep the family creating bread lines and things. You know, we did that as, as youngsters, but I didn't really take it very seriously. Um, until I got out this time and my brother and I started talking about how we could have an, you know, basically what we're capable of doing in that shop and how we could, uh, come up with a product that, uh, would fit into our, uh, into our, you know, our skill set, if you will. Um, and, you know, having been a drafter, you know, learning the draft drafting trade, computer drafting, I realized a lot of things about design and how and how you can develop a product. So I really had that advantage and then I started working with a nutrition program which was pretty rudimentary in those days, but it helped me to, you know, formulate something that I really believed in and uh, I had a lot of fun with that. So, so you went at this at a, with a really, a really conscientious and sort of methodical approach. In other words, your brother welcomes you back in. You've got a, a, a hardly a, a thriving baking business, but it's a small business, and you guys would like to make it a little better. So you set about to create a product and design a package that would appeal to uh, your customers. What did you uh, did you automatically decide that you'd come up with your own bread, or were there other ideas? Tell us about that. The first thing we did when I got out is I went to work for 12 bucks an hour working on the line just like anybody would. Um, and I, I did, you know, I worked like night hour, night shifts, uh, usually filling in for other people. And it turned out that I worked myself into a job pretty quickly. Um, and I lived in my mom's garage and uh, eventually I was able to get a car or a truck and I dro- drove around for years. And uh, so, I, I mean, I was, I, I felt great. You know, it was so, I was free. I felt free and ready to kill it. So I, my, the first assignment my brother gave me was cookies. He liked to re, redesign the cookie line. And uh, so I did that. It was fairly straightforward stuff. But when, uh, then he's like, okay, I'm, I'm thinking a bunch of more cookies, right? And yeah, I had all these ideas and he comes along and goes, you know, we don't really do cookies. That was just kind of a, practice run <laughs> uh, yeah you start out uh, with the cookies you, you knock that out of the park so <laughs> let's, let's move it let's do something else and he said let's do bread that's what we really do well 
And uh, so it was all about thinking, you know, what's it going to be that I can do that the big guys won't be able to just jump in and do? Because uh, we're a small bakery, we had niche, there's a niche opportunity. And so I, I went out and I learned, you know, how to make, the first thing you do, like in drafting, is you replicate what's already been done. Then you have a template, and you work from there. So I had to learn to replicate the, what I thought were the best products out there. And you know, whatever was the best made them so good, I said, well, let's make it better. Let's, use, let's just make it better. And essentially, that's what I did. Yeah, and uh, the result is, uh, well, Dave's Killer Bread. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me about the name. Whose idea was Dave's Killer Bread? Because it's a strange name for a loaf of bread. Yeah, it is. Uh, my brother, my brother wanted to call it Dave's bread, uh, kind of just to distinguish it from the other things we were doing. And you know, I thought, well, that's you know, I, I kind of like that. It's my name, so you know. But then uh, I thought, well, it's missing something. And uh, I, I, the first two varieties of bread I made, one was called Blues Bread, named after blues music. I just, but I think it's I liked I liked the sound of Blues Bread. And I created a bread around that name, and that was the first killer bread. But we weren't calling it killer bread yet. The second variety I, ca- I made was called killer bread. And I just like pulled out all the stops and made a, a loaf of bread that I thought um, was just absolutely killer. And, <clears throat> you know, uh, killer is like a, a word that I, that I always use when something's amazing, right? So... I uh, when I when I brought that out, people were like, eventually, like this is Dave's bread with Dave's killer bread. This bread's killer, Dave's killer bread. It just started happening, and uh, it just took off. Well, it didn't just start happening. I mean, you guys got. You, you, first of all, you can you can you know, as you know you can create anything you want until somebody says they like it. You've you really got nothing. So you get this bread yeah. in front of consumers. That's at a uh, at the Portland Farmers Market, just in kind of like Correct. a come by and taste our bread booth. Yeah, we were very fortunate to get into a. There happened to be a event called the Summer Loaf that was at the Farmers Market, and it was all about artisan bread. So it was like everybody bringing their best artisan bread recipe and see what people think. Well, I brought this and. Um, I already had six varieties ready to go, but we decided to go with four. And they, you know, we put the samples out. And I remember one lady uh, coming up and just taking a bite and, and walking away. So I'm like, oh, well, whatever. And then she comes back with like six people. And this is the way things, it just started to go. I, you, know, you tell a friend or two friends, they tell two friends. <laughs> and it was, it was unreal. Word of mouth. Yeah. Great stuff. And then the next thing that has to be done, this is a remarkable story. You know you got a product people are going to like. Um, that's part of the um, of the struggle. The, the next thing is to get it on shelves in the right stores. You wound up everywhere yeah. with this bread, right? Yeah, and you can't even imagine, uh, you know, the struggles that, that, ens- that ensues, ensue at that moment. Uh, there are so many conventional things that you have to overcome to be to kind of make a make a mark you know first of all we had uh, resistance right within the family bakery uh, people were like oh you know they were comfortable in their in what they were doing and i came along and made everybody uncomfortable but that's how change happens and um 
essentially we because of the popularity of the farmers market people started telling the the stores that they went to hey you got to have this bread because i'm not going to be able to get it after the market's over and um that's what got me into one little store one little co-op store northwest portland and essentially it's just one little store and one other little store and then eventually a chain called new seasons and you know it just kind of went from there you know everybody at their store as a different store was like well wait a minute they have it we need it too yeah yeah and uh that just kept happening for us yeah and that among those stores uh was uh, trader joe's and whole foods yeah. well trader joe's never did take the bread because it and the, the reason is because trader joe's wants their own packaging their own names and they weren't willing to do things the way you know this was a killer product and uh, we just never could come to a deal, but everybody else, everybody else. So, and so now you're, you know, you, let's talk about a comeback, right? Uh, how did you handle your newfound success? Well, for years I handled it very well. Uh, I was so busy doing it. I, I enjoyed, you know, I, I was a natural at what I was doing and I loved what I was doing. Then, uh, it was, you know, I went, in front of the media constantly. I just had great, I just had so much, you know, grassroots success and so much love in the community because I was doing good things along with it. I was telling my story to kids, to senators, you know, you name it. Um, and they all were loving it. But, you know, it kind of, I always thought, and there's, in my little book you talk about, the Good Seed book, um, I mentioned the monster and how, I was afraid of that. You know, I had to always keep in mind that that monster was there. And uh, if I let the monster in, I'm through. And so I did, though. After a few years, um, I got a little bit, it got a little bit easier to do my job. I had more people doing more things than me doing less. And, you know, idle time, <laughs> you know, yeah, you the, know the rule there. The devil's workshop, right? Yeah. And I had a, so I started drinking and, you know, I wasn't doing crimes. I didn't return to a life of crime. Um, nothing like that. I just wasn't myself. I wasn't the best I could be anymore. How long ago did that happen, Dave? Well, the drinking, I believe I started drinking kind of heavily in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then by 2013, I went to treatment for it. There's a long story that goes with that, but spare you on that uh 2013 so then i got out of treatment and about two months later well i i started drinking again but then i quit and there was so much else that happened i mean there was a guy who died it was a friend of mine he died in, in a way you could say he died on my watch because i was drinking and i wasn't paying attention you know and uh he uh went out and they found him a couple months later um you know dead and so that created a whole bunch of problems you know first of all was my buddy dying but then a lot of people were accusing me of killing him so that's the sort of stuff that started happening it just got so dramatic and then uh you know i just lost it one night one day yeah you well, gonna, well uh, i want you to pick you i want to stop you there so we don't get too far ahead we can pick up on yeah. that uh, in, uh and, and we'll tell you what the ultimate outcome of uh 
of the bakery yeah. that uh, Dave's family had, and uh, Dave's killer bread, and the and the uh, second chances he's provided he's provided for other people after uh, this uh, second crash and burn. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio, and uh, boy, I hope you uh, joined us for the whole thing. If not, you know, it's always up there on the uh, on, in the podcast uh, arenas, so you can listen back to the story of Dave Dahl. Dave is the creator of uh, Dave's Killer Bread, huge, huge success in uh, in the retail world. World, uh, and it came at a, ter- at a after a terrific struggle that Dave has uh, shared with us with uh, his his problems with mental issues and drug abuse and and uh, uh, stints in jail. Uh, he gets his second chance, and uh, it uh, culminates in a, uh, you know a, a meteoric rise uh, from this tiny bakery that his family had to the success of Dave's Bread. He has a stumble during the middle of that, but manages to get his uh, his feet back under him. Uh, and I, I guess the final the final story of uh, you know you as an entrepreneur and a business person is what happened in 2015. Was it that that the company was sold? Yeah, that was uh, it. Was the final sell was in like September of 2015. So the the big guys, after trying to knock you off by uh, by copying your techniques and your marketing, just said, "No, you yeah. know what? Let's buy these guys because they got a good thing and and we got to have it." Um, how much did you did you sell the company for? You and your family? Two hundred seventy-five million. <laughs> At the now, you know, I've, I got I got a percentage of that. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. you know, certainly not a not a uh, you know majority of it. Yeah, yeah. But you you didn't, you didn't walk away empty-handed. Well, you know, you shouldn't have. Um, uh, you know, it's amazing. You began this story with feelings uh, as a youngster of not fitting in and feeling like you you know more or less your family was on the wrong side of the tracks and your dad was a hard worker, but it was a struggle. There was never enough money. Uh, you didn't. You looked like the least likely candidate to lead <laughs> a charge in the opposite yeah. direction. But to wind up um, a qu- over a quarter of a million dollars uh, in a sale is is nothing short of spectacular. And I want to I want to make sure people understand. You know what you talk about now as you go around the country telling the story over and over again. You didn't just take the money and run. You, you felt like you had to, I guess, pay this forward by giving other people a second chance. How are you do? How do you do that, Dave? Well, okay, let's let's clarify that a little bit. I always gave, or my 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 company always gave others a second chance because they knew we all knew that you know because of my success that others could do the same thing. And so it seemed like an, a a real simple equation for us and. Uh, an obvious thing for us to do. And we were very successful with it because people who are ex-felons and otherwise disadvantaged can often be very grateful and really hardworking special employees and smart too. Um, So because of that, we always did that. And then in 2015, the company continued that. uh, After we sold out, the company continued to do that because that had become uh, what they were known for. And they continued, so they ended up starting a foundation called the Dave's Clear Bread Foundation. I am not part of that. Uh, and because of my incident, there's uh, I've never really had uh, a reconnection with the company because of what happened in 2013. Yeah. But um, I, I personally constantly am involved in 
organizations and causes that are related to second chances and uh, overcoming and transformation. These are the things that I that I do now with my with any time that I have to work with. Well, the hiring thing is a not an insignificant thing because among the many difficulties anybody who's been through a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue or criminal justice issue has to deal with in order to reintegrate back into you know the real world is employment. So when people like your family and uh, the, now the now the company that bought you uh, bought your company uh, continue to take a chance on people is it's really uh it's really commendable uh you're you're right though spend you're right if you get the right person who's who's messed up and they've made their life right again they're very motivated as workers aren't they yes and there's a lot of those people there's a surprising amount of those people that are just for you know given up on by other people but you know because of my own experience, it's really easy for me to understand that there are people that are ready. And uh, so, you know, we we did make a lot of mistakes in hiring at first because, you know, when you just hire your friends and stuff, it's not always the best way to go. Uh, but when you hire the people that are actually ready, you really you can really do, do very well from it. They become great assets. Um, so there's there is a art and a science to it, you know, to doing it right. Uh, you don't just go hiring everybody because they're ex-felons. You hire the right person. If they happen to be an ex-felon, well, great. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge uh, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, you know, anytime you hire someone you don't know, it's a risk. When you hire someone, right. when you hire someone who's got a backstory, um, well, like yours. Um, uh, you got to you got to you got to know what you're doing before you before you go down that road. Exactly, and they can and and the the work that you do with that person is worth it because that person can be above and beyond. Yeah, you know, more companies should uh, should adopt that uh, that spirit and not automatically exclude people because they've had well, in fact, me- diseases. That's what mental illness. Mental illness or drug, yeah. drug, drug abuse uh, winds up being. Hey, uh, Dave Dahl, uh, thanks so much. It, it was uh, it was great talking to you. And uh, many people may not may not know uh, the, uh, your story, but I'll bet you they know your bread. That's how I found out, out about it. Yeah. Thank, thanks for joining yeah, us. And, yeah, thank yeah, you. It's a, it's, 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 a it's, it's really a pleasure. And thank you all for listening to Recovery Radio again. Brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health. You need uh, questions, somebody you know needs help, give them a call, 855-859-8810, 855-859-8810. Hey, look for us next time on Recovery Radio. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.